In fact, I, I dare say most Americans believe that in the not distant future, we're all going to be driving electric cars and that will allow us to drive to Walmart forever. There are so many ways in which that wishful idea fails, but um, we don't seem to be able to overcome the wishing. As day by day goes by, do you ever have a sinking feeling in the very back of your head that none of this stuff is sustainable? And I don't mean sustainable like in that hippie, tree-huggery, sustainability way. I mean, there's a fragility to the things that we've built in our post-World War II civilization that seems like it could topple over at any minute. It just doesn't make sense. And surely we know there is not an endless stream of resources and a well-oiled machine that backs up the world that we've come to just expect. And if you want a completely different point of view on what that means long-term, then listen to this podcast because James Howard Kunstler has been studying where all this is headed for quite some time. Jim is an author and a critic with many nonfiction novels and plays behind him. He's also done a fantastic TED Talk, lectures at many different universities, and frequently contributes to magazines like The Atlantic Monthly, Slate, Rolling Stone, uh, New York Times, and uh, has even been on The Colbert Report. Hopefully his point of view on how America is likely to get a lot smaller and how the different skills that we have uh, as communities and as individuals might need a really big change. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. In preparation for you scaring the absolute shit out of me, I've snorted huge lines of Zoloft so we can get started. Oh, you must be, <laughs> you must be mellow. I'm bracing myself. But uh, actually, let's start with this. So I don't remember where I heard this. I thought it might be interesting to start with. But it was the premise that the reason that so much entertainment with apocalyptic themes uh, has never been so, I don't know, popular or seductive. So things like Hunger Games and Mad Max and Walking Dead and Mr. Robot, all that stuff. So basically, stories where young people have to clean up the mess that us old people have made. Anyway, these stories, the premise is, tap into this deep-seated subconscious, or maybe it's conscious, awareness that we're these gerbil slaves to these unmeetable uh, standards and overconsumption and pollution um, and these stories allow us to blow up and start over. So it's kind of like a, an escape from our shitty realities uh, and this fantasy of things being simple or tribes-like again. So if anyone would have an opinion on that, it's you. Huh. Well, I can't say that it's an expansive opinion, but I would. Uh, it sounds pretty right to me. Um, you know, most of the, especially the sci-fi apocalyptarian material out there is uh, paradoxically uh, really more about today than it is about the future. Uh, I didn't go to the movie theater to see the latest Mad Max movie, but I did surf by it on cable TV not too long ago. 
And, you know, I was really impressed with uh, how, well, first of all, the, 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 the silliness of a post-economic collapse world basically being all about a car chase. <laughs> you got to keep it America, right? I mean, it's just, it's just so dumb. Uh, and, and the fact that they've gone through four, I guess, four of these movies and gotten away with that dumb idea is just amazing. Well, it's Fast and Furious, but like in, in Apocalypse. You know, the characters, uh, the, especially the villains, the way they were done up with their tattoos and their piercings, and uh, they, they kind of looked like the guys who hang out at the, the convenience store in my town. Well, remind me not to hang out in your quickie mart. So what do you think? Is the end coming? I mean, is the fact that this resonates with us a sign? What is it that you see when you're focused in these areas of kind of suburbia being scrapped and um, the world being sucked dry of all of our natural resources? Well, I, I don't like to characterize myself as a doomster right. or an apocalyptarian. And the books that I've written you know, are all kind of based on the idea that what we're facing is really more of a historical discontinuity, you know, a, mm -hmm. a kind of a break or an inflection point in the project of, of humanity or the project of civilization. And I don't think that uh, the human race is going to stop. I, I'm not among the extinctionists. Right. Uh, but I do think that we're going to be going through a set of changes that are going to be pretty uh, stark mm -hmm. and probably pretty upsetting. And that it will... Um, entail a certain amount of loss of uh, notional wealth and knowledge even. You know, I think that there, that uh, uh, probably a great deal about the technology that we're enjoying today is going to be lost. And um, a lot of the things that we regard as permanent parts of the human condition, like the internet, are going to prove to be very uh, um, fragile and, and ephemeral. And uh, that life is going to reorganize itself. You know, I, I, I consider um, life as a, an emergent process, human, human life as a, and so, a social, human social life as an emergent process. It, it uh, periodically reorganizes itself in an emergent way, responding to the mandates of reality at the time. Mm -hmm. And we will. And, you know, among the things that we're going to have to respond to is, you know, we're going to have to get smaller. Uh, the population is going to go down one way or another. You know, probably the, the usual suspects are going to come in and do their thing. Um, you know, violence and starvation and disease. And, you know, the, the human beings, uh, like all animals, don't live forever. We have a limited life. So uh, there's a kind of a natural attrition there in any case, no matter what else happens. Mm -hmm. um, I think for a while the population is not going to, the population may remain stable for a while simply because even under conditions of hardship, people still have sex and produce children. But after a while, I think it'll go down. You know, we're going to have to reorganize the way that we feed ourselves, the way we produce our food to farming or um now, there are a lot of people who uh, view agriculture itself and, the, and the, the civilizations that grew up around agriculture as being kind of a basis, the basis of our predicament. And I'm not so sure that's true myself. You know, I'm not in that camp. So what are the driving factors to this turnaround or this inflection that you're referring to? Well, we've 
kind of reached the the end of our ability to continue growing this techno-industrial civilization. Mm-hmm. And we're having problems with the uh, the resources that we need, especially the energy resources. There's a, a condition called peak oil that I wrote about and a lot of other people wrote about and, and that we were concerned about in the last 10, 15 years. And the meme is going around now that, that, that we don't have to worry about that anymore. And I think it's uh, hugely misleading and, and pretty um, dangerous for people to believe that. The public has been sort of sold a bill of goods that uh, the, the shale oil, so-called shale oil miracle is going to allow us to continue to drive to Walmart forever. And that's probably not how things are going to work out. Uh, so we're having these resource problems. And but they're also expressing themselves in financial problems and and the basic inability of the financial system to which is sort of like the 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 blood system the circulatory system of of a big techno industrial society it's making it impossible for that system to function anymore because without increasing supplies of of affordable energy cheap energy you know that we can actually pay for we're not going to be able to produce the kind of industrial growth that's necessary to pay back the debts that we have been generating in order to uh, make up for the fact that we're having resource problems. In other words, we borrow money in order to keep this giant uh, matrix of complex systems running. And we have to keep on generating more and more and more debt. And we've also reached the end of the line for our ability to generate debt. So, you know, between our resource problems, our environmental problems, both pollution and, and problems with um, what we're doing to the, the planetary ecosystem and climate, and financial pro- uh, problems that are making it increasingly difficult to run a coherent uh, banking and money system, uh, you know, we're in for probably a pretty major reset in the way that we conduct human business. It sounds to me what you're saying is it's not just peak oil, it's peak systems that all of the assumptions we've put around the different systems we use, debt, oil, food, uh, there's, um, there's a lot more that you would be an expert at than me, but that there is an uh, end point, there's a, a max that those systems can uh, grow and be maintained. And so what take us through what a pivot in your mind looks like because my guess now this is my perspective my guess is that the massive changes that would need to be put in place and some of the deconstructions that you you referenced earlier in this conversation would be felt more retrospectively than when we were actually making those pivots chronologically would you agree with that by the way or do you really feel like it's going to be some sort of like whoop you know right in someone's lifetime there's a huge break press. No, I think that in our, you know, in our lifetimes, uh, there's going to be a, a very noticeable break in how things work. Oh, and I think it's already happening. Um, uh, I mean, you can't fail to notice just, just for starters, um, how disorderly the American political process has become. Yeah. Just right. in this, in this 2016 election year. I mean, we've, we, we've re- really never seen anything this crazy in you know in my lifetime and 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 looking at history it's really hard to see anything as disorderly since the 1850s 
you know, when the Whig Party disappeared and, and we went through kind of a political convulsion that produced both the Republican Party and the Civil War. But in any case, you asked about pivots. And uh, uh, one pivot we're seeing right now is what's happening on the oil scene. And, you know, this is going to be very instructive for the people who dismiss the peak oil idea. So over the last 10 years, we ramped up this giant shale oil operation. And, uh, you know, people thought, oh, well, we're going to be the next Saudi America and we're going to, you know, this is going to produce energy independence. And, and we did, we did uh, produce a, a huge amount of oil in that period. But uh, it, it cost a lot to get that oil out of the ground. It wasn't cheap oil. It was expensive oil. And it required a lot of debt, uh, a lot of debt financing to get that oil out of the ground. And we produced so much that, of course, it had the uh, the paradoxical effect of uh, crashing the oil market and the price of oil from over $100 a barrel to now uh, just under $30 a barrel. Uh, one of the problems with that, maybe the chief problem with that, is that if it still costs you, you know, $65 or $70 a barrel to get the stuff out of the ground and you sell it for $30 a barrel, you have an obvious, you know, business problem. That right. business model doesn't work. Sure. And so uh, what's happened is that the, you know, many of the shale oil companies are now uh, facing an inability to um, pay off their bonds and, and pay off their debt and, and pay back the money that they borrowed to do all the drilling that they did. And, and by the way, I think that a lot of the shale operations were were done mostly to demonstrate to Wall Street that this would be a good investment. So oh, it was kind of a big kind of demonstration project. And as a demonstration project, it was very impressive, but it had huge kind of collateral problems. The, the first one I've already described. So starting this, uh, this year, you know, we're going to see a large number of oil companies go out of business. And uh, I think when the dust settles from that, the shale oil industry is going to be a much smaller industry and we're going to see production go down. And uh, I'm not sure it'll ever recover. Um, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, a, as a result of the overproduction and uh, combined with uh, a lot of geopolitical events, uh, the, the world, especially the oil producing world is now becoming so disorderly that uh, it would take very little to disrupt it almost completely. You know, for example, if uh, a terrorist act took out the Saudi Arabian oil loading terminal at Raz Tanura in the, per in the Persian Gulf, you know, that would uh, uh, completely destabilize the oil industry. And, and uh, I don't know, you know, where it would go from there. And in any case, probably in 2016, I think we're going to see a lot of trouble in the oil industry and it's going to uh, also be, it's going to kind of infect politics and geopolitics and it's already infecting the global economy. And um, that, you know, that's, that's one of the pivot points. Um, it, it's related to the financial pivot point of, uh, of the great unwinding of debt that's going on right now. And uh, that, you know, I think that's also going to affect people 
uh, greatly when we discover that much of the notional wealth out there, which is based on money that was created from borrowing, from creating debt, that we, we discover that a lot of that money, that wealth is notional wealth that doesn't really exist. And, uh, you know, that'll be expressed in things like deflating stock markets and the blow up of uh, bonds. And, um, you know, people will be left holding empty bags of investments. The problem with the debt blow up and the financial blow up is that you end up in a world that has a great deal less available capital for both conducting the everyday business of a techno-industrial civilization and for financing future projects and enterprises, including the ones that we are hoping will solve our problems, like uh, you know, so-called renewable energy projects. So there's going to be a great deal less capital than people are expecting to, to uh, remediate the problems that we're going to be facing. There's a memory that I think we individually have and that are we're aware of beyond our own lifetimes, but it's usually a pretty short-term memory. And I'm trying to get my head around whether there is a proxy or a readjustment to the scale that you're talking about in history. Is there one? Well, yeah, um, but it happened in antiquity and it happened in much more slow motion because that was a non-electronic world that was, you know, kind of a handmade world. And we're talking about the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it took a lot longer for that system of systems to fall apart. But, you know, it was a system really comprised of things made by hand, including all the great monuments of Rome. And so is there a lesson we can learn from that particular chapter? Well, there are a lot of lessons we can learn. One of them is, is that... Uh, uh, you know, we're in a we're in a, a technological civilization, and one of the things that is uh, w w one of the problems with it that I've described is what I call techno narcissism or techno grandiosity, and that is uh, you know an unwarranted uh, overconfidence in the ability of technology itself to solve all of our problems for us. And there are still an awful lot of people who, you know, believe in these empty promises. And I think they're going to be very disappointed. And I mean, there's a reason that I wrote a series of four novels under the, the general title of World Made by Hand, because I think that's really what we're heading back into. You know, you, you survey the American scene and you see things like Elon Musk promising to solve the transportation problem by electrifying the car uh, system, right? And an awful lot of people believe that. In fact, I, I dare say most Americans believe that in the not distant future, we're all going to be driving electric cars, and that will allow us to drive to Walmart forever. There are so many ways in which that wishful idea fails, and they're so obvious, but um, we don't seem to be able to overcome the wishing. Yeah, well, why are they wrong? Because I want to make sure I can use my electric car to get to the Olive Garden to get some breadsticks. <laughs> yeah. I think most people assume that the main issue with the cars is how we're going to power the cars. Well, I don't think it's going to work out that way. I think what we're going to discover is that you know, this, will be one of, uh, this will be part of the blowback 
of the banking system and the financial system getting into trouble. Uh, and we're already seeing it. It's, it's very plain that what's happened is so much wealth has disappeared and, and being expressed in the uh, vanishing middle class, you know, this large class of people that no longer has any money, you know, that they basically can't afford to buy the hardware to participate in the happy motoring system. And we've been trying to compensate for that by making the terms of the car loans longer so that now it's, you know, it's normal to get a five or six or seven year car loan. You know, we kind of uh, took all the techniques from the subprime mortgage industry and applied it to the car loan industry in the years since 2008 so that the car loan situation is now a, a replay of the, of the uh, janky mortgage problem that we had eight years ago. So the, the fact is that the motoring system is going to fail on financial grounds before it fails on, on, on even the question of how we're going to power the cars, because people simply won't be able to afford to buy them. And then, of course, the question arises, uh, okay, uh, all the municipalities and states are also going bankrupt. And uh, how are they going to keep on maintaining this elaborate hierarchy of, of roads and streets that we have that, you know, that require constant, huge amounts of maintenance? So, you know, I think that we're going to see the motoring system fail in a lot of ways that people aren't expecting. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, it just seems like all these things are part of our capitalistic reality. And with the failure of pieces, big nucleic pieces of that system, I'm wondering what your perspective is around how our capitalistic you know, mentality uh, survives this kind of change. Well, I have a strange attitude about what people call capitalism. You know, I don't regard it as a belief system or even an ideology or, or even necessarily a, a, you know, a financial system per se. I, I think what, what capitalism really describes is simply uh, the, the behavior of surplus wealth. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't think that, you know, I don't think surplus wealth is going to entirely go away. I think there will always be people and groups that have more than other people in groups. Okay. It, it, you know, it may be smaller than it is now. We produced an, just a, a supernatural amount of surplus wealth during the 200-year orgy of uh, cheap energy growth. And, mm -hmm. and that's what we're used to. And we, we kind of refer to the byproducts of that as capitalism. But I don't think that, 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 that cap, I think capitalism is kind of a bugbear because there will always be surplus wealth. There will always be behavior of that surplus wealth. And, and you know, under the best circumstances, surplus wealth is managed in such a way as to produce good things for mankind you know, future investments in making things better for ourselves. And uh, we were able to manage it that way for, for a pretty good part of the, the um, industrial adventure. You know, we learned a lot about banking and rationalizing the deployment of money, you know, and making it work for us in ways that were good and produced a lot of uh, progress and human happiness. But, you know, the, the, the conditions that produced that are now going away. And uh, so we're, we're living in what will probably be 
an increasingly compressive contraction of wealth. And we just don't have a lot of experience with managing contraction. You know, that's another one of the kind of fundamental problems is it's one thing to manage, to manage the, the things that come up in a society when you're on the way up producing ever more wealth. It's another thing uh, managing a society that produces yearly ever less wealth. Yeah, so if you think of the United States, then if you add all this up and say, okay, the United States is this person, right, who started just a few hundred years ago and is growing and, you know, maybe I don't know which part of its life you would put it, but it seems to be that what you're saying is, is that it's almost like I've got a teenager, right? So I've got a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old and a baby. And, you know, they have that kind of uh, misplaced focus and prioritization on the wrong shit and kind of confused reality as they transition from youth to adulthood. So is that kind of, if we're a person, this is just the kind of growth that the, co the country has done that just misapplied everything? I'm not sure that uh, I'd say that we're, we're adolescents, you know, because if, uh, I think we're more sclerotic than adolescents. You know, <laughs> we've, lost, we've lost many uh, capacities. And the one that you seem to be describing is uh, capacity for understanding consequence. Right. That there are consequences to the things that you do. There's so many obscured realities and systems in the narrative that you're giving. And we're, we bite off a different story, a different meme in our brains. So we can't see what's happening in our own lives, by the way, let alone at a national level, which is even more complex. Well, we're certainly seeing that in the political debate in the, in the main arena uh, for the moment, you know, in the presidential election arena, we see a complete inability to, to even drag the important issues into, into the discussion. So it's a marketing campaign, right? So people are, are running their marketing campaigns versus turning the orange inside out and saying, I don't know if it's ever really about, let's, let's put a, a magnifying glass on the broken shit and, and really serve it up to people because otherwise it might just freak everybody out, right? Well, it raises a, a lot of questions beyond that. For, for one, the question as to whether democracy itself can actually work when a, when a society gets into trouble or whether, you know, the worst instincts of the majority start to really deform the conversation and, and the decisions that we make. So I'm not a, you know, I'm not a fascist or an authoritarian or a monarchist, but I really wonder about a system that produces Donald Trump. Well, I mean, there's patterns, though, you can't ignore. And I think there's this, the reason why this whole Trump as Hitler meme is rampant is that we have a lot of the same things going on in America that were going on in Germany at that time. We've got a, a lot of marginalized, socioeconomically depressed people who are looking for a scapegoat. And that really sets the stage for someone with an extreme point of view. I think you even said Trump is Hitler without the brains and charm, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. The situation in Germany, actually, in the 1920s, I think was, I think that they were a probably a more together and more coherent society than we are now. You know, I see American societies as, as being much more discordant, rife with contradictions and inequalities uh, that, than anything that Germany saw 
back then. You know, they, I mean, they had one major problem, which was the financial blowback of the First World War. The problems with their banking system thundered through their society and, and, and caused the, the rise of some very sharp problems like huge unemployment. That, that was a much simpler situation than the one we're in. The one we're in is, is so complex that uh, even what we're seeing is a failure across all of the, the lines of culture to even comprehend what's happening to us. What, we, we cannot construct a coherent consensus about what's going on. And because of that, we can't uh, construct a, a coherent plan for what we're going to do about it. Isn't that the key to getting out of this fucking situation is to somehow make it a Baskin-Robbins tasting spoon of the problem so everyone can just quickly understand it and digest it and go, oh, I get, you know, because it's so, all these things are always divided and separated and illuminated and talked about and argued. And it's just, I just don't see how we're going to get out of this big, huge, complex, wacky thing unless somebody simplifies the living shit out of it and and give us a vision of where to go. Otherwise, we'll just, you know, you ask, people asked, uh, Henry Ford asked people, you know, what would you really want here? And they'd always, they'd always say a faster horse because they can't imagine anything else. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, well, that's why I think that this is a dangerous discontinuity because I, I don't think that these problems are going to be comprehended or responded to in an intelligent, coherent way. And I think it, that it will actually require the falling apart of a lot of our systems in order to push us into, you know, drag us kicking and screaming into the, the place that reality wants to take us, which is, uh, you know, a world that's more localized, a world that uh, of smaller scale, a world of politics that takes place on a much smaller scale. Um, perhaps, uh, you, know, you know, United States uh, and other nations that are broken up into smaller entities. T take, for example, the problems associated with our suburban living arrangement, which I've been writing about for over 20 years. We, you know, we've built ourselves into such a predicament that we, we simply can't imagine letting go of this stuff. It's our whoobie. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the wealth of whatever the remaining middle class of America is, is mostly tied up in their homes, which are, you know, mostly suburban houses, which are mostly part of a living arrangement that has no future. And I don't think it's really possible for them to think about changing it, letting go of it, or doing what has to happen. And what has to happen, you know, is we're going to have to return to living in traditional uh, human settlements. And that means towns, neighborhoods, cities that will probably be smaller than the ones we have today. They may be in some of the same places, but they're going to be smaller organisms. And we can't imagine letting go of this stuff and, and, and moving to that future. You know, I wrote a piece about the future of cities about a month ago. It won't come out until the summer on a website called The Baffler which is run, uh, it was started by Thomas Frank, who wrote that book, What's the Matter with Kansas, about mm -hmm. uh, why uh, middle-class people vote against their own interests, you know, when they j join up with the Republican Party. Anyway, there are a couple of points I made in this book about cities. You know, one is that they are going to have to contract. 
that the contraction that they go through in the years ahead is going to be, probably be pretty painful because it will entail huge losses of uh, assumed wealth and real estate values. There will probably be ethnic battles about who gets to occupy the territory that that retains its value, you know, namely the 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 old downtown cores and the the property around waterfronts, etc. The property that retains value. The, the cities that have seen a huge amount of skyscraper growth are going to be especially affected because the skyscraper is uh, an obsolete building form. The reason is we're never going to renovate them. You know, they'll never have another generation of life because the capital is not going to be there for it. And probably a lot of the modular fabricated materials that you need to do that are not going to be there. You know, even things as humble as sheetrock. You know, we we take that for granted as being a kind of a simple material, but it actually entails really long mining and, and manufacturing supply lines, et cetera. The whole system for financing megastructures and skyscrapers and, and large buildings generally um, that we've used in the last 30, 40 years, the condominium model, is going to be a huge problem. We've only experienced it on the way up the debt mountain. We've never experienced it in a comprehensive, compressive contraction of wealth. And what will happen is that uh, as the individual owners of the units fail to pay their so property association fees or their mortgages, we're going to discover that it takes very few of those failures to destroy the relationship between the property association and the megastructure. Bottom line, no one will be taking care of these buildings anymore. And, you know, you can't have an apartment building with 150 units where nobody takes responsibility for, for the maintenance of the building. So that's going to be an enormous problem. We're, we're, you're just going to discover that that was, uh, you know, it was a mistake. It was a bad choice to, to go down that path. It seemed to work for a while, but, you know, it's not going to work, you know, in the years ahead. We're going to reset to a, a simpler, more local level of life. And, uh, you know, a lot's going to be lost on the way to that outcome. You know, even the people who view, view what's coming realistically uh, are going to be challenged to, to keep it going. It goes back, I think, to the first question around the attraction of this, call it apocalyptic reality. But I, I can see how it's, in some ways, super attractive to get to a place like that of a lot more simplicity and... There's a, there's a lot of capital being thrown around right now just around these ideas that are, I'm sure, not true with organic things and local things and you know everyone throwing money on those ideas because it feels like the right thing to do. Well, it's they're not hard... all bad ideas. I mean, a lot of them are good ideas and a lot of them are, are worthwhile ideas. But, but um, uh, you know, the, the, there's an element of them which involve a lot of wishful thinking, especially the alt-energy ideas. Right. You know, the idea that we're going to run, we're going to keep on running suburbia, Walmart, the U.S. military, and the interstate highway system by other means than, than oil and, and fossil fuels. You know, that's, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, the paintbrush in my head starts painting this 
because I start looking for solutions to these things automatically. I don't know why, I guess, but I just start going, oh, well, then what does the future look like? And as I paint that picture, I go, oh, well, you know, the future is we have instead of United States, it's just states and these new uh, reconstructed urban environments that follow more of the tested, tried and true design patterns that have lasted forever, mostly in Europe, that we bring over here around plazas and this and that, and it feels so much better. And But it's hard, I guess, to get my head around the other reality of there's a surrender of power um, and comfort of having this mommy and daddy that that's going to keep us safe and uh, take care of us at a national level uh, that forbids my brain from completing that picture. Well, that's, I don't think that's the only impediment to completing the picture. The main one, uh, uh, using the model that, uh, or the reference that you just made, you know, how, how are we going to reconfigure our cities or our towns or our settlements, whatever we want to call them, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it really comes down to a, a matter of scale. You know, what is a scale of human settlement that is really consistent with the um, resource and uh, money realities of the future? How much of those resources are going to be there and, and what scale will it allow us to live in? I, I'm convinced that it's not the scale of what we've got now in, you know, Dallas, Houston, Minneapolis, New York City, Boston, San Francisco, L.A., etc., you know, Phoenix. You know, the scale of those places is just not going to survive. So then the question is, you know, how do you downscale successfully? What do you do with these enormous right. infrastructures? Now, you know, we, we've seen a little bit of a preview of coming attractions in places like Detroit, St. Louis, and Cleveland. You go to those places and they're, they're you know, they, they're shutting down whole districts and neighborhoods and, and just cutting off the water and electric service to districts that have, uh, you know, all, that are almost all empty lots now. And all the hippies move in. Well, that's, an, that's the next thing, which is, you know, you get a certain cohort of people who uh, we new urbanists like to call the risk oblivious who will, will come, you know, will come into a place that's really hit bottom and, you know, and, and take the opportunity to do something with it. But there are all kinds of um, skewed understandings about how that's working out. Now, in Detroit, for example, there's been a great deal of hoopla about the idea of urban farming. You know, right. we're going to take all this vacant land at the center of Detroit and turn it into farms. That, to yeah. me, is a complete misreading of of uh, what's really going to happen and how and how humans organize the landscape in general in history and and which is to say you know you have the you have the urban place whether it's small or 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 not or a little bigger and then the farming takes place outside the urban place i mean you can have gardening in the city but let's not call it farming. And one of the reasons that we're confused about that is because suburbia, you know, the experience of building and living in suburbia for 70 years obliterated the distinction between what's urban and what's rural. You know, what's the town and what's the country? And what are the activities that, that are appropriate to each? So, uh, you know, so we arrive at this uh, false understanding of, of what the future of the city is going to be in a place like Detroit. Well, well we're just going to farm there. You know, well, that's dumb. First of all, our cities are where they are because they occupy important sites. And in this case, it's, a, you know, a river between two great lakes, a very strategic site 
in North America. And there will probably be some kind of human settlement there. It may be a lot smaller than the Detroit of 1950 or 1970, but something's going to be there. And the farms, you know, Michigan is full of wonderful, excellent farmland outside of Detroit. One of the companion nutty, dumb ideas to this is the idea that we're going to have so-called vertical farming on big, you know, megastructures. So the idea is, you you know, you're going to spend $30 million so you can grow zucchinis, you know, on a 10-story structure. I guess as long as there's a Starbucks on it, I'm fine. Well, it's a dumb idea. I mean, you know, the the way to grow the zucchinis is horizontally on the ground, you know, without the intervention of the $30 million structure. But having... You know, coming out of this world in which there was so much cheap capital as well as cheap oil and cheap everything else, you know, we, we're, we're kind of uh, inclined to these dumb ideas that we can just keep on, uh, you know, building elaborate techno-narcissistic things. You know, getting back to what I said earlier about techno-narcissism, this is really an example of that. I, I'll tell you, the thing that kind of goes through my head whenever I have conversations like this are... This is going to sound weird, but do you remember that infomercial? I guess it was maybe in the 80s where they would show bald people getting spray painted with hair. Yeah, sort of. I do. Being a bald person. Yeah, me too. I just mean generally the market says balding is a problem, but we don't. We get frustrated because all the solutions that people throw out there feel either too hard to comprehend or you know, so gimmicky around spray paint and so forth. So I always want to break something into like, where do you start, right? Like if everything, if the ship is just listlessly heading towards an iceberg, isn't there just some things we can do that help us hold on to a course correction or begin where to start? I mean, without sounding like a complete hippie, are there some things that we can do that that change direction? Or do you just feel like, hey, man, it's way too complicated. The shit just has to happen. It's part of an organic purge. Both, both. Uh, I think there are there are some people who who can make things happen and a great many who are just simply not going to because either they don't have the they don't have the resources or they, you know, they just can't find a way for one reason or another. Now, for example, you know, I, I think that it's making individual choices about how you're going to live in the years ahead is terribly important, although it, we're now getting to a point where it may just be a little bit too late. It's important to live in a part of the country where you can actually grow food. I would be very troubled if I was a person living in Tucson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or Ontario, California, or West Texas. Live in a live in a part in the part of the country where you can grow some of your own food. Uh, find a town that is located in a place that has value. Um, for example, uh, as the global economy withers, and it's begun. That process has begun, by the way. You know, it's, it, it ought to be self evident in both the currency wars that we're having and the trade problems that are beginning to develop. Uh, we're going to see the inland waterway system of America regain its importance because the economy of North America is going to become much more internally focused. So, you know, there's a great, there are many, many places along the inland waterways of America that are going to regain their importance and, and their value. And people can start considering uh, living in those places. Um, but, you know, obviously moving your life is a huge thing. So, yeah. you know, when you say, you know, what are you going to do? And, you know, 
uh, obviously, a lot of people are not going to be able to make that decision, either for emotional reasons or for practical reasons. Another thing you can do is decide that you that you that, that, that there's a certain arc to your vocational life that you have to pay attention to, and that maybe it's not a good idea to get a bachelor's degree in marketing from, uh, you know, from a state university. Maybe that's a waste of your time. Maybe you'd be better off learning how to be a blacksmith or do carpentry or use hand tools or a lot of things like that. These are things that young people can do. And, and in fact, I see a lot of young people making those decisions. Uh, I live in a part of the country, which is a kind of quiet corner of upstate Eastern New York, about 200 miles from New York City, that used to be a dairying county. You know, dairy farming, by the way, is pretty much an industrial activity. We really didn't have it in the way that we know it until about 1900, mm -hmm. when we got the electric milking machine and bulk refrigeration and uh, motor transport and the Holstein cow. You needed that combination of things to have industrial dairying, you know, meaning running a herd of more than, you know, 20 cows or so. And so this region became a dairying region during that period. In the 19th century, by the way, it was mostly sheep in, in Washington County, New York. And, yeah. uh, and now dairying is, is becoming a, a bygone industry. Uh, and it's, we're seeing the farms being replaced by what people disparagingly call boutique farming, which is, you know, small-scale farming on fairly modest acreages, raising things carefully, uh, going from farm to table mm -hmm. and, and pretty directly to the, you know, to the region around us. And yep. I see people succeeding at it. I got a friend who's got a farm. Uh, he grows a lot of winter crops in what are called high tunnels. These are um, basically, uh, you know, cheap greenhouses made out of uh, aluminum hoops and plastic. And he gets 37% of his yearly income off of the, the greens that he grows in these high tunnels and sells to the farmer's market and the local uh, restaurants. Yeah, as much as we make fun of hipsters, I can definitely see a trend of re-embracing some of those uh, by hand versus mechanically driven processes that uh, have taken over. I, by the way, I, I wonder, you know, all of us have some bug up their ass that kind of drives us to get hyper-focused on whatever it is as adults we get hyper-focused on. And I, I wonder for you, how, how did like, how did you end up with this extreme focus on this suburbia and what's going on with society? Well, I was a newspaper reporter. That's how I started out. And I covered the OPEC oil embargo of 1973 when I was a you know 25-year-old reporter for uh, the newspaper in the capital of New York, Albany, New York. Mm -hmm. And we had the company I worked for, which was a Hearst newspaper. Um, the company had just built this brand new headquarters. They'd moved from downtown out to this suburban boulevard about 10 miles out of town. And it was this huge suburban boulevard of brand new chain store commerce that had like popped up overnight in just a couple of years. So the OPEC oil embargo started and I just saw the, the whole suburban world fall apart in three weeks. It was a, a quite an extraordinary experience and it made quite an impression on me. And I realized, you know, this is a very provisional world that we've constructed for ourselves. 
you know, then I went through some personal changes of my own. I, I ended up on Rolling Stone magazine and it was a glamour job. And, uh, I was kind of thrilled to get there, but I didn't like the job very much. And after a year, I dropped out. And I, when I say dropped out, I dropped out totally. I dropped out of corporate life forever. And I rode a motorcycle uh, back from San Francisco, where Rolling Stone was located at the time, back to the east. And I ended up in upstate New York, determined to write books. You know, this is the, the, the whole suburban thing had always fascinated me because, um, um, I had experienced the three main ways that people live in America when I was a child. When I was five years old, my parents bought a house in the Long Island suburbs. Uh, and when I was eight years old, they got divorced and I moved back to Manhattan with my mom, but continued to visit my father on Long Island throughout my childhood. I knew both the suburban milieu and the, you know, the life of the most intense cosmopolitan life that America had to offer in the middle of Manhattan. And, but I also went to summer camp uh, outside of a small town in New England. And, uh, you know, they used to take us in there every Thursday night to go to the movies or go to the street dance and, or just wander around town. And I often did the third thing. I wandered around town a lot and, and I was amazed and kind of fascinated by small town American life or the remnant of it in the early 1960s. So I had been, uh, writing novels for a while and, uh, after I dropped out of Rolling Stone and, and they were all getting published, but I wasn't getting rich. In fact, after my eighth novel came out, I was still waiting on tables, which is kind wow. of a, uh, an amazing thing. If I had known that from the outset, you know, I might have had, I might have like gone to dental school. Uh, anyway, that's how it worked out. And, um, and, you know, I was kind of sucking wind after, you know, publishing these eight novels and, and not becoming an overnight sensation. And so one day I got a call from the New York Times magazine and they wanted me to write about uh, a kind of a suburban story about the overdevelopment of Vermont because the guy who was the editor happened to have a summer house in Vermont and he noticed that there was a lot of kind of bad stuff happening there. So I wrote that and I wrote three or four other related kind of articles for the New York Times magazine. And I ended up turning one of them into a book proposal that my agent was kind of enthused about. And he ended up selling it to Simon & Schuster. And that was a book that became The Geography of Nowhere, which was an, ex an exploration of the fiasco of suburbia and how we got to it and why we built it and, and what it portended for the future. And that, that led me to become involved with a group of really kind of heroic reformers who I still regard as some of the greatest people of my time in America, the new urbanists, who were very eager to try to reform the way we were building stuff in America and came up with a really excellent, coherent, intelligent program for understanding how we build our human habitat and, and, and doing it better than we had been. So I became associated with them. And I learned a lot. It was like taking a graduate and then postgraduate course in urbanism, architecture, etc. And I wrote a lot about it. And then that led me, you know, having written the Geography of Nowhere, which ended on the note of asking the reader, well, how do you think we're going to run all this when we get into trouble with petroleum? And interestingly, around the same time, 
that the Geography of Nowhere was published. And, and also, I, I wrote a couple of sequels to it, uh, one called Home from Nowhere, which was about the new urbanists, and another one called The City in Mind, which was a really a collection of essays about cities. And around that time, in the early mid-90s, a bunch of senior geologists started retiring out of the oil industry and started publishing their own dark secret thoughts about where the oil industry was headed. And, uh, and there was kind of a, you know, a consensus that it was heading to a pretty dark place, that, we, that there was such a thing that they were beginning to call peak oil, and that it was going to probably express itself in ways that were surprising. And we're seeing exactly that now. Uh, oil prices have gone from being really quite high to being supernaturally low. So one of the features of the peak oil story turned out to be the stunning volatility of oil prices as the economy and the oil industry itself started to react to the instabilities being produced by peak oil. So I got into that, and uh, you know that led me to write a book called The Long Emergency, which is about the convergence of the oil problem, the resource problem generally, the crack up of the financial system uh, as we know it, and uh, problems associated with climate change and, uh, uh, and disease, epidemic disease. So uh, then I wrote a sequel to that called Too Much Magic because uh, I was very impressed with following the financial crack up of 2008. I really don't like to brag very much but I did emphasize the growing mortgage fiasco in my 2005 book, The Long Emergency. And it turned out that that indeed blew up the financial system. So we've been in this very strange period since 2008, which I sort of call the, you know, the age of wishful thinking or the era of wishful thinking. And uh, I wrote a book about it called Too Much Magic. The subtitle was wishful thinking, technology, and the fate of the nation. And we've been in this wishful thinking era for, you know, for eight years now. And a lot of the discussion that it's generated is around, uh, you know, techno-narcissistic memes like uh, Elon Musk is going to save happy motoring with the Tesla, and then he'll go to Mars and make that, you know, a welcome vacation spot for for us. You know, the idea that shale oil will make it possible for us to drive to Walmart forever. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, re related ideas like that. So I think w one of the manifestations of the moment is that we're now coming out of this era of wishful thinking. And as we begin to confront, especially the financial and economic realities of this compressive contraction we're entering as uh, expressed in things like the, the, the failures of the middle class and the losses of the middle class, you know, we begin to see phenomena like Trump and, uh, you know, himself expressing the extreme instabilities of our time and the incapacity of people to deal with it coherently. That's how I got to where, where I got to. You know, Jim, I used to work a long time ago in the 90s at Dell uh, Computer, and there was a – I sat on a floor that was a cube farm as far as you could see. And so there was the posters that they had on the wall at the time, of course, had to be huge and overscaled. And one of the, the I guess, mottos of one of the posters was pretty close to my desk, so it was looming over me, and it used to say – 
no vision, no decision. And it was like it was screaming it. And, you know, it really made an impression on me. And I and at right around that same time, um, I had a friend's father who recommended a pattern language, uh, the book kind of on a lot of the topics that we're actually talking about now. It's the, it's one of the seminal uh, books of the new urbanism. It's by Christopher Alexander and a group of his graduate students. And it was they wrote it at Berkeley in the 1960s. Yeah. And it really created a vocabulary that I could hold on to. I mean, it's not the, it's not the easiest thing to get through. He does piece it into almost like a dictionary of sorts that you can reference, but you know, you have to sit with it a little bit and spend some time with it. But the reality is, is it gave me the kind of contextual vocabulary that it sounds like the arc uh, that you just went through for yourself, where you, you know, you grew up and you were in rural and suburban and urban environments. And then you started getting exposed to all these things. You all do these things. need, you need a lexicon. You need a vocabulary right. for, for even talking to yourself about what these problems were. I, I was fascinated for years and years about what the suburban matrix was all about. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. really wasn't until I met the new urbanists that I really got it, you know, that I really developed a, a vocabulary for understanding it. And that's what I think I would invite anybody that's listening to this to, if you're going to do something, at least come in and understand some of the concepts that can be broken into patterns and these pieces and this kind of lexicon, as you put it, because once you have it, you can make your own decisions about, about what's around you at least. Right. Yeah. Like for example, just so that the listeners understand, um, uh, Christopher Alexander's book, a pattern language tried to describe our world from, from going from the larger things in it to the, to the smallest things in it, from the region where we live to the room that you're in. And, and one of the things that you understand after reading that book, by the way, is that, you know, a window is not just a hole in the wall. You know, it's a relationship between the outside and the inside of the building. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what you, dis what you discover after reading a, pa uh, a pattern language is that it's all about the, the nested relationships within which we conduct our lives. And that, you know, all of these things have relations to each other. The buildings have a relationship with each other and they have a relationship with the public space around them. The things in the buildings relate to each other. And the better they do that, you know, the generally happier people are going to be in their surroundings. And, you know, what we're seeing in our world is such a uh, titanic failure of relationships between things. And it's one of the reasons that people kind of, you know, feel uh, it's what I believe it's really why we're living in such a depressed country. Yeah, well, it made it definitely made a huge impact on me. And it's it's been a pair of glasses I've used to look at the world around me since I first read it in the early 90s. Uh, now, where can people if they want to keep staying with this topic and get closer to the dialogue that you're having on it, where can they go and, and get more? Well, you can go to all the usual suspects who sell books and get get mine. There's my blog, uh, which is uh, called Clusterfuck Nation, and it's at my website, which is www.kunstler.com, K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com. Jim, thank you so much for the dialogue today. It's a super critical one. I know a lot of people are going to get super into it as well. 
Well, thank you for having me on, Sam. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You're, you've got a great uh, coherent way of your own and, and a clear, comforting voice. I'm sorry you don't live closer. <laughs> well, when I get to upstate, we can, we can hit the, uh, the chilies and get an awesome blossom or something. Okay, that would be great. <laughs> Take it easy, Jim. It was very fun to talk to James Howard Kunstler, and a huge thank you goes out to him. There's a ton that I pulled together on his webpage on growbigalways.com. A lot of the references that we mentioned, and they're good ones, are pulled together for you there. So go over there, check it out uh, at growbigalways.com, and also sign up for the email that we send out with each episode so that you don't even have to remember to go over there. I'll just send you the resources that I put on that webpage right into your inbox. And please remember, GBA is completely non-commercial. That means no money is being made. It's completely supported by your engagement. So drop me a line. Give me some feedback. We can make this show better every single week. So until next time, thanks for listening. 